We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. Do you have trouble talking about your childhood? Because most people would not understand. Or you fear about being judged or shamed if you told the truth. Do you have little idea what normal looks like? Because growing up, you only saw it on the TV. When it comes to being a parent yourself, do you normally reach for the opposite of what your mother or father did? These are just some of the signs that you might have grown up with dysfunctional parents. On today's podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the long-term impact of being an adult child of a dysfunctional family. My witness is Dr. Samantha Rodman-Whiten, who is the host of the podcast and blog Dr. Psych Mum and the author of How to Talk to Your Kids About Divorce. She speaks from experience as a mother of three children who remarried in 2020. Her other book is 52 Emails to Transform Your Marriage. My clients and sometimes friends will say to me, it was a long time ago. It wasn't pretty. I don't remember much anyway. I've moved on. I've forgiven my parents. So what's the point of raking it all up again? So when you get that, what's your reply to it? Well, the analogy that I always give that seems to resonate the most is to say, oh, so if the things that happened to you now happen to your own children, would that just be no big deal? And they say, oh, no, I would immediately get them into therapy. I can't even imagine that. My children would be so poorly impacted by that. And I say, well, you you're in the same boat. So you have to picture yourself in the exact same shoes of your own children where you would not minimize it at all. That is the most beautiful way of putting it. Thank you very much. And I hope that's got everybody sitting up and saying, okay, we will listen to this podcast then. (laughs) So how did your childhood make you the therapist you are today? Oh my God, Andrew, it would go over time. But I mean, I don't even really believe that there are many of us therapists who are very passionate about our work that did not grow up in dysfunctional homes. I can't imagine why somebody would be interested in it or why they would persevere, you know, dealing with what could be considered quite a depressing occupation unless you have some skin in the game of trying to help people not go through things that you yourself went through, in which case it is kind of a healing occupation. My parents were not in a happy marriage. They are still together. They don't listen to any of my stuff. So it's no biggie (laughs) to talk about. Hi, parents. (laughs) I can't imagine out of all the things they would pick a different person's podcast to listen to at first. But anyway, it's certainly no surprise. They were not happily married. And as a child, I was an only child. So I, I do think that it's a lot more pressure when you're an only child in that situation. I've seen that in clients later. But I remember trying to explain them to each other, thinking that that would work out, you know, starting at like four. Big, you know, spoiler alert, that did not work. And they continued fighting in perpetuity. And that was the beginning. But there were also many other things. I mean, I think, you know, they could each have been diagnosed with almost, you know, the entire DSM between the two of them. So it gave me a real good internship in in that starting at, you know, again, at consciousness. I read somewhere, you'll find this amusing, you know, that thing that about how Tiger was, how you need like a 3,000 hours of experience or something to get good at something. And I said, adult children of dysfunctional families have that by like age 10, you know, so they could just go immediately into private practice. (laughs) But yes, yes, that, that is. And anxiety is also a big one that I talk about. It was a very anxious household. So that was a particular thing that I like to work with people on is not transmitting their own anxiety to their children, because I was a real case study for how that happen. Excellent. So we can sort of also help people understand the difference and really understand what is necessary for a child. What do normal parents do that we as children needed? Well, there's the idea from Winnicott, as you may know, of the good enough parent. 
you know, somebody that is not too overly attuned and obsessed with the child's needs and wants, but also is not emotionally or physically neglectful. So striking that balance. And really the way that I put it to people is, did you learn how to be a happy adult from observing your parent? And many people just say, no, of course, how could I? They weren't happy at all. So a more functional adult is a happy adult, you know, somebody who gets some sort of joy about everyday life, their entire identity is not being a parent or obsessing about the child, nor is it being an adult outside of being a parent. They balance being a parent with being an adult in other ways, and they seem to be relatively happy. And that happiness transmits itself to the child such that the child feels that they are being taken care of by a happy and competent adult that they wish to emulate. One of the ways I put it is that the job of a parent is to help a small child regulate their feelings because a, a small child doesn't know how to regulate. You know, a good example would be a, a toddler tantrum. They don't have the emotional capacity yet and they don't have the brain development to be able to do it. And it's the job of the parent yes. to come along and hold them and listen to them and help them calm down and learn how to express themselves. And you know, and I will say to my clients, you know, who did the regulating in your family? And sometimes for children, it sounds like it might have been a bit for you too. One of your jobs was to try and regulate your parents. Yes, very much. So that's obviously the parentified child's role is to act that way for the parents. And when a parent does not have good control of their own regulatory skills or is suffering from various mental health issues, they cannot regulate the child. They are in fact triggered by the child and take the child's behavior very personally as an attack or as something dangerous or as something personal, you know? And I think the other question is, how aware were they of your needs rather than their needs? Right, right. Well, and it, it's interesting because Obviously, I work with many clients who were physically neglected, and I certainly had nothing like that. Obviously, my, not obviously, but my needs were, were taken care of in a physical sense. And in fact, overly so about like various things I wanted to do. In a way, my parents were precocious because of the parents I deal with now have a very hard time setting boundaries with their children and distinguishing between a child's wants and needs. And because I think my parents were unhappy in their own lives and they had both grown up and, you know, not financially well off, they wanted to, you know, meet my very specific needs. Like if I wanted to watch TV for three hours or five hours or whatever, sure, you know, or if I wanted, I don't know, to get a book, a certain book out of the library that we would definitely get that book out of the library. But it was in terms of seeing that the child me that I was very growing, very anxious and depressed because of the constant conflict in the home that was not really able to be seen. So there were certain like, you know, can't see the forest for the trees type of thing. And sometimes, I mean, my in my case, they were very good at meeting my physical needs, but not my emotional needs. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there was always food on the table and everything was perfectly well regulated, but nobody ever talked about feelings or emotions. Yes, you must have been on the other side of the spectrum, being in the UK. My parents talked about their emotions ad nauseum, ad infinitum. So, you know, I mean, should have been somewhere as a mean between your experience and mine would have probably been the average good amount of emotions to be expressed. But yes, it's, it's very different culturally. It's different, you know, in different countries, it's different ethnicities, whatever. So Jewish people talk a lot about their feelings should come as no surprise from anybody who's watched Seinfeld, right? And so my parents were squarely there. Not the vulnerable feelings, but you make me angry. Oh yeah, boy, we could talk about that for many hours and did. Whereas I'm sure from what you describe, even cursorily, that was not how your family rolled. Yeah. I never saw my parents angry at all. They never argued at all. We might get a sort of a damp snub and a, a minor little spat that was over in two seconds that was sort of unexpressed and all under the radar. The loudest sound in our household was the grandfather clock ticking in the hallway. Yes, that is certainly things that I saw on TV and seemed very alien to me. And and I'm getting better at them because my second husband is a wasp. So, you know, they didn't do that either. So it was more like the grandfather clock scenario. Very alien to me, but something that over the decade and a half that I've worked with couples, I've seen 
you know, parents can go on either extreme. Neither extreme is good. Generally, we want people who can express their emotions in a regulated way, not not express them, but not overexpress them. So am I thinking that sort of dysfunctional falls into two categories, the sort of emotionally distant, shut down, unavailable, and the histron- hist- histrionic, I can't even say it, yes. and the sort of unpredictable? Yes, for sure. And I think that those people relate very differently to one another. You know, I mean, when you grow up, I see obviously, and you see people who are preoccupied or anxious attachment drawn to people who are avoidant attachment. The avoidant attachment often grew up in the restricted, the emotionally constricted household and the preoccupied attachment or the pursuer often grew up in more of a chaotic household. And they're like screaming and yelling, trying to get the avoidant one to emote. And in some ways, both of them on a superficial level are very attractive to each other because if you've had nothing but histrionics, calm is absolutely wonderful. And if you've had nothing but calmness, a little bit of, you know, Seinfeld is, you know, wonderful. Yes. Until you get a little bit beyond the surface and then you discover this is both your greatest desire and your biggest nightmare. Yes. All rolled into one. For sure. Definitely. And also when children come onto the scene then each of the people tends to grow more critical of the other, you know, perceiving, you know, that uh, the histrionic woman calls the non-emotional man a robot that's not teaching the children how to have feelings and that he calls her crazy and putting the children into a very chaotic and volatile, you know, environment. And neither is wrong and neither is fully right. So are there any other signs that you grew up in, in, in a dysfunctional family that we haven't covered? Well, I mean, I think the thing that you said about TV is very relevant because I've talked to people and this is always a, like a real light bulb moment. I said, do you know that those sitcoms on TV are based on real people so that the average person feels like, man, I'm like those people. Oh, yeah, I recognize that. It's like 85 percent of people are like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like home, you know, in the middle of the bell curve, I mean, by 85%. And then like other people are like, oh no, that's just television. If you're in an, oh no, that's just television, then you probably grew up in a dysfunctional home. So I've put together sort of eight impacts on children when it comes to adult children and their relationships, the sort of things that I see. So, and we'll go through them and uh, let's see what you have to say about them. But the thing that I think I see the most in my practice, and I don't know about you, but it is the high achievers. They make things happen. They need to be in control. Sometimes they have problems actually finding relationships because most people don't like to be controlled. Do you find a lot of high achievers who come from dysfunctional families and why might you? Yes. And the thing is, is that the majority of people who come from dysfunctional families do not turn out that way. So it is only the most resilient or the ones who have the most compensatory mechanisms, like very smart, very high energy, something like that, you know, that can pull them up out of that mire to become high achievers. But often they kind of need somewhat of a narcissistic persona, like they need to be their own Superman, their own superhero to rescue their own self out of that family and to be their own inspiration because nobody's there for them. So then those very same narcissistic traits that, and I know that term is overused, but I'm just saying the traits really that help that child get out of that dysfunctional home and help them be successful in relationships. Those can be very difficult for a partner to deal with and can cause a lot of difficulty. And I think a lot of people don't actually see that connection. They say, you know, I'm great at relationships at work. So why do I have so much trouble in my, And you know, I have great friends, but I have such trouble in my intimate relationships. Yes. So then they usually, if they've only been married once, especially, they'll blame it on the partner because that just seems scientifically correct. Here they are. They engage with hundreds of people, thousands of people in a lifetime, and only one thinks that they're terrible. Well, statistically, right? I mean, they got a point, but it's it's invalid because that's the only person with whom they show the entire of their personality under stress, under duress, and the only person with whom their attachment issues get activated. And all the others can go home at the end of the day, can't they? Yes. So another thing I see is what I would call romance and fairy tale ending addicts. Yes. 
And that is a narcissistic actual criterion, the obsession with unlimited beauty or power or some other one. But yes, exactly. Very much. And why might you fall into that particular category if you've had dysfunctional parents? Because you never got it. It just, you want it so bad, you never saw it. And so these people have like multiple step plans, like, oh, my parents did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, and I'm not going to do those things wrong. So then therefore I am going to end up in, and I deserve to end up in a perfect relationship. You know, and it just doesn't work like that. In fact, uh, it's the opposite. You know, they didn't learn any skills of compromise and you need to compromise with every human being you're in a relationship with. Except, of course, if somebody truly loves you, that you don't need to compromise because you'll both feel the same way about something. (laughs) In perpetuity. (laughs) But, you know, I really understand this one because, you know, if you're absolutely miserable at home, the thing that keeps you going is that one day I'll be out of this and one day I'll have a great relationship. It's the sort of, it's back to being part of your superpower that gets you sort of out of there and keeps you keeps you going rather than being sort of pulled under. Yes. And it's really yeah. difficult to then completely turn it around and learn these skills later. Yes. And it's especially for men that make a lot of money because mm. they feel that they can provide to their wife a perfect life in all these material ways. And then they get very angry when she still has any emotional needs and is unhappy with his ability to fill her emotional bucket. Because I mean, no kidding, he didn't learn how, of course, so he has no idea. But he thinks the, the better of a lifestyle that he provides, the more he felt on some level that she would just be appreciative and grateful forever. And actually, in lots of the television programs, I'm thinking things like, I think we're probably both of the dynasty Dallas sort of kind of generation, that um, if ever was a problem, Blake would buy Crystal a really a wonderful set of jewellery and all the problems would be solved. Right, right. And did you did you see White Lotus where you are? You got to watch. You really, it's psychologically great. There was this couple where he was very rich. They were on their honeymoon and he wanted the perfect room. He had felt that he had reserved the perfect room and he had a different, wonderful honeymoon suite instead. And he became obsessed with it. And he like kind of destroyed the honeymoon, you know, because of it. And that's a very similar sort of personality. So the next one I've got is the distant shut down kind of people. So tell me about those. Well, I mean, that's going to be the people that two things. Sometimes people emerge from a chaotic home and become that because they learn to just kind of go into their room and avoid all of the yelling. And then sometimes they're just modeling what they saw, the reserved, distant parent who you don't really know. I have clients who they say, I never knew my father or I never knew my mother. I have no idea what made them tick. So then when we're trying to think about that person's life, like in order to make sense of the narrative of my client's life, we often think about in depth what the parent was going through. It's almost like they have no idea. The parent was just kind of a specter. They didn't really know anything about them. And then the next one is to aim for perfection, but to become people pleasers, follow the rules. You can't go wrong if you follow the rules, even if you're not really 100% certain what the rules are. Yes, I call this, um, you know, these people pleasers, they often come from covertly narcissistic parents. You know, the parents that they act like they are so wonderful, but in reality, you realize that you have to do everything exactly their way, compliment them, always be on their side of a story, you know, and the child, this is especially like oldest daughters of covertly narcissistic mothers. I've seen this, you know, they become her best friend, you know, and for boys, they become her surrogate husband, you know, and they always have to say, oh, mommy, you are you are so pretty. You were right in that situation. That person was wrong. And as long as they stick to those rules, they are beloved, you know. Mommy dearest. Yeah, that. So you can become highly sensitive if you have dysfunctional parents. Well, yes, that I would say you can become rejection sensitive. So highly sensitive people, that's more of a trait. That's like uh, Elaine Aaron's work. 20% of people are highly sensitive people and like 80% of people in therapy, honestly, and like 90% of therapists. But, <laughs> but, but you do become like super heightened in almost a PTSD sense 
to any perceived rejection. You become the person who can like hear how somebody walks into the house, you know, because if dad walked different when he was drunk or mom walked different when she was angry, you had to know that in order to figure out your plan for the evening. You're going to stay in your room. Are you going to come out? How are you going to act in order to avoid physical, emotional, whatever things were going to happen to you. So yes, you could become hyper vigilant. And these are the preoccupied attachment people that are constantly scanning their partner in couple sessions and like say to me or to you, no, 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 he's upset. We can't continue the conversation. I know he's upset and I know that I'm going to hear about it. I'm looking at his face. You're upset, aren't you? Aren't you upset? Aren't you upset by what she said? And it's like those sort of people were raised in a home where it was extremely adaptive to be hypervigilant. Yep. And it sort of basically saved your life in some ways. But once again, it's another skill you learned as a child that you might not need so much nowadays. And then obviously you can become like your parents. And I think it's difficult to recognize this, but be a sort of a drama, I was going to say queen, but you could be a drama king as well, and maybe even have problems with substances yourself. Well, yes, the substance abuse is big because it helps you escape. And many adult children of dysfunctional families started with their substance in adolescence, often early adolescence. And the substance can include sex, too. It can include sex and porn and relationships, you know. And it can also include drinking and drugs and just all sorts of things. Food, yes. So many things because you just don't want to be there. So you get out in any way you can. The thing that I say to a lot of these high achieving men who are very charming and good with women and the little, of course, they're married and then it all goes, you know, down the toilet. But I say, so I assume you started to have girlfriends pretty early. They're always like, oh, yes, I did. How did you know? I spent most of my time at my girlfriend's house starting at 14. Because very easy for a boy specifically to go over to a teenage girl's home. The parents want her at home anyway. So he kind of becomes like another child of theirs, you know, and is often drawn to the family as much as the girl herself. Ah, I haven't seen that one before. That's an interesting one to look out for. Um, Another one I see are the rescuers. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's like the people who try to help everybody not be into the, not in the same situation that they're in. And also, of course, then you get validation for that and you get closeness and you get love. If you don't think you're worth very much internally, then you try to rescue others and hope that then they think that you're worthwhile, at least because of what you've done for them. And on one level, that sort of works, doesn't it? But on another level, it doesn't. Explain to me why it doesn't work. I mean, so from what I have a a post on Dr. Psych Mom about the man who tries to take everything off his wife's plate, but she's still unhappy. So it's, (laughs) and I get many clients. Oh, I've never met that person. (laughs) I get many clients from that because these guys try to literally, and of course women do it too. It's called, I also call it over-functioning and I've not come up with that term, but that's a common term. If you think that if you do everything for somebody, then Thank God, finally, finally, then they can give you love. If their only job, the only thing they have to do in the day is give you love, then wouldn't that work? But instead, that person feels kind of useless and kind of like you're always looking down on them and kind of like they don't really have any meaning to you but to be a a love giver, you know, And, and in fact, then that makes the relationship much worse. They don't feel truly known or understood. And this one I see a lot, and this one's a positive one. They become seekers. They're um, one of the reasons we see a lot of them is because they want to sort of learn and they want to grow. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and when they're young, it's the same thing, but they don't have the tools. So these are the girls that get really into astrology or things like that. They're always trying to understand. They just always want to understand themselves and the men who get super into self-development, you know, all these books on optimization and maximization of your life and your health and all of these things, you know, because you don't feel good and you want to understand why. So have I missed anybody? No, I mean, that was fairly comprehensive. I'm sure other things will come up as we talk. (laughs) So how do we help these people? Well, I mean, there's so many, there's so many paths. It's really kind of almost dependent on how they come in. 
well, it's very dependent on how they come in and their goals. So people that come in in couples counseling, it's very obvious that relationships are not working for them. And individuals come in frequently for the exact same reason, although they're coming in solo, whether it's parenting, parenting often really, you know, is, is a very difficult, you know, you don't have a template, right? So then you don't know what to do. And then in terms of what you just said about the seekers, adult children of dysfunctional families who are female read like 75 parenting books. And that's while they're pregnant, you know, I mean, that's before they even have children because they are so, so terrified of recreating the same paths. Unfortunately, sometimes they swing 180 degrees opposite and act totally different in a different dysfunctional way, such as overly enabling a child when they had been totally ignored. You know, so it depends on the goals of the person. But I think that going back to family of origin is essential in almost all arenas, unless we're talking about literally like a spider phobia, you're going to treat it with exposure therapy. But in anything where the person is deeply unhappy with like how their life is going, you, you got to go back to family of origin and explore it and look at it in different ways and and think about the how silly it might be that you as a child were not impacted, even if that's your pet, you know, idea that makes you feel good, of course you were impacted. And I think, what's the word? How am I going to put it? You sort of, you want to take some of the personal responsibility off their shoulders. They sort of feel, you know, it's all my fault or it's all your fault. And I think it's really helpful to put it into a bigger context. Yes, people find it very, very validating in particular to read books. So like there's certain books I always recommend, like Surviving a Borderline Parent or Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, Children of the Self-Absorbed. I mean, there's so many. But when people read those books, they're like, oh, my God, I thought it was just me. And then you're like, oh, no, there are classic constellations of behaviors and traits, you know, like the 13 traits of adult children of alcoholics. You know, people get it, the laundry list, that thing. People, whenever they could see they weren't alone, then they're like, oh, my God. Well, I mean, I guess it is no wonder that I have trouble in my marriage or with my children or what have you. And beginning to see that actually what you're doing today is actually probably was a very good coping strategy when you were a child. You know, there's nothing wrong with this coping strategy. It's sort of got you here today because if you're in either of our offices, you've you've actually done really well in this world. Yeah, so, true. but it's no longer working for you because it has a sort of a sell-by date, and you've sort of got to find some new strategies. And I find that is a very helpful idea for people. Yes, and validating that at the time they were doing the right thing and the thing that enabled their survival. And they learned to do that thing because it was helpful. And now maybe they could learn to do a different thing. So do you think it helps to try and change your relationship with your parents? I mean, that's such an individual decision. I mean, for, for many people, it's more effective to accept that they will never change, you know, and that trying to make them change is a fool's errand and really isn't going to help you in the long run. Now it's kind of your time to shine and you got to really focus on yourself your kids, your relationship, and just say that it is what it is for them. Yes, but I think you can change the way that you interact with your parents. I mean, oh, there's no, sure. there's no, you know, there's no way you're going to change your parents' personality. You can approach them differently, and I think that that is something that's really helpful. Yes, approaching them differently and frequently not getting caught into the drama, creating boundaries, gray rocking, you know. Gray rocking? Gray rocking is a term of being literally boring like a gray rock. So somebody who's narcissistic or borderline, this would not be for the parents who are withdrawn anyway, but for the more dramatic histrionic parents, they try to hook you into some sort of story or they try to get information about you that they could potentially use against you, not for internally really malicious motivations, but because that's how they relate is via drama and, and histrionics. And instead, you just kind of talk about the weather. You just have a smooth, bland expression. You don't give them anything to work with. 
It's just kind of how you would talk to a crazy person if they sat next to you on the subway. You know, it's just kind of, you just really bland, boring, like a gray rock. And this is a very useful, practical strategy for many people who deal with more of these narcissistic or borderline trait people. I've never heard the phrase before, but I really love it. I think I'm going to have to adopt that from now on. It's great. Yes, rock I have a whole podcast episode about it. And I had my then 12-year-old do it with me. Like I was I was going to teach her how to do it. And then I acted like, you know, like super, like crazy, like starting with her. Well, what do you think about this? Huh? What about this? What are you doing? What are you doing for this? And she would just be like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. Things are good. Things are good. You know, and it's just like you're not giving them anything to hook into at all. So then they just move on to the next, you know, potential victim. I sometimes uh, suggest puppy training your parents. So with puppy training, (laughs) that if puppies do things that are annoying, like leaping up at you, if you react, even though it's negative, negative reactions are just as good as positive reactions. So in fact, you have to ignore the puppy that's actually jumping up at you. The time that you don't ignore the puppy is when it's actually lying there peacefully catch on its. Being good. So you catch them being good and you give them the attention at that point. So you reinforce that way the things that you do like. So, you know, if they're talking about, for want of a better word, nice subjects and they're behaving, they're playing nice, yep. then you are engaging and being pleasant. Mm-hmm. And Wendy Bahari in her book, Disarming the Narcissist, talks about this a lot. So somebody like rewarding only the behaviors that you want to keep going. So like, let's say the narcissist and this, uh, your husband, let's say, says, oh, I got you like $3,000 worth of clothes for your birthday. And they want you to jump up and down over how, you know, wealthy they are and how amazing they are. Instead, you say, thank you for remembering my birthday. That's very nice of you. Because the thing that you want to reward is just the core kind thing versus giving them this adulation, you know, that that they want for this over the top thing. So you're rewarding only what you what the, the more adaptive and functional behavior is that you wish that they would replicate. It always makes my clients laugh. Is Treat your parents like they're a puppy. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So when do you emotionally distance yourself from them? You know, is there a moment when parents become so dysfunctional that you have to save yourself? So when there's an empathic rupture with the parent, so like for women, for example, if they had a great hope burning in their heart that somehow when they had a child, their narcissistic mother would emerge into a wonderful grandmother who was giving and loving. And then the baby is born. And it turns out that the mother doesn't want to cancel her cruise that was already scheduled for the due date. And she's still going to be cruising for three weeks afterwards. And then she comes over for 10 minutes and says, what a beautiful baby and leaves. At that moment, you know, it's kind of hard to go back because that just shows that she's always kind of going to be the same person. And that could be a real aha moment that the woman has to grieve and process, but things are no longer the same. Or, uh, for example, like I have clients who who um, become very success, a man who becomes very successful financially or, you know, gets a big promotion and his father still doesn't say anything nice to him. Like he thought he could get up to a place where his father would have to be nice or recognize something in some sort of way or say, I'm proud of you or I love you. And he just doesn't. And at that moment, you know, there's usually a moment where you're like, huh, I guess it will never change. And when you get to that moment is when people frequently come into therapy and say, how do I deal with this? Do I go no contact? Do I go low contact? What do I do? And what would you say to that? Again, super individual. Some people do go no contact. Some people go low contact and keep the grandchild relationship alive between their kids and the grandparent. I mean, some people could figure out different ways of dealing with it. Some people work through their own stuff and even forgive their parents, whether or not they tell them that, because they realize that kind of it was worse probably for their parents. Parents did the best they could, which turned out to be not good. But, you know, it is what it is almost. The happier people are in their lives and their current relationships. The other thing is, is that if if you really, really hate your parent on a deep level because you think that they made you messed up and that they are at the root of your marital issues. But then, like, let's say you fix your marital issues. 
often a lot of your resentment somehow dissipates because you're no longer struggling with that issue. And the other problem, of course, is your partner and your parents. Oh, yes. That's a big problem. But as I tell people, I have a podcast that says your in-laws are never the problem. It's always how your partner is dealing with their parents. Always. Because what would women's favorite thing be? They go over and they hang out with the man's parents and he comes back and he's like, man, is my mother a looney tune or what? Oh my God, like what a panty dropper, right? She would be thrilled to have that conversation. She would love it. But instead, the guy comes back. She says, did you not notice when your mother like pretended like she forgot what I do for work for the 15th time? And he's like, well, you know, mom, she could be a bit absent-minded. Well, then we start in, right? Because he's still being primarily emotionally a son rather than a husband. He's not individuated. He's not ready to look in at his mother's dysfunction. Her problem is really with him. That's too scary. So then she says she hates her mother-in-law. Yep. I've seen that a, a lot of times. And what do you do if it is your partner who is arguing with your parents and you're caught in the middle? I say that couples counseling focused on how we as a couple can set boundaries with the parent, you know? Honestly, even when men consent to read a book titled Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, the woman is so thrilled. <laughs> I mean, because he's finally saying there might be a problem. And then somehow all of her animosity and rage toward her mother-in-law somehow evaporates a bit because that was never truly the problem. The problem was that the man refused to, and, and it can go either gender. I'm just using this as an example because, you know, in popular media, the mother and the mother-in-law, you know, the woman and the mother-in-law are particularly bad with each other, but it can be either way. And when your partner really finally says, hey, I think I did have somewhat of a strange childhood and that I was impacted by it in ways that now actually impact how I relate to you and lead to you struggling at times, that is super validating. Mm. I think we're coming back to a favorite topic on this podcast, and I'm sure on your podcast as well, which is setting boundaries. Now, Parents don't like boundaries, particularly dysfunctional adults don't like boundaries. So how do you set one up and how do you make them work? It's so different, different people. I guess the point is, what is your, on a deeper level, what is your goal? What is your hope for how the relationship with your parent works? Why are they still in your life? So for example, if they're still in your life primarily to be a grandparent, well, then that's kind of an easy one. They're invited to all the children's events. You talk predominantly about the children. The children, as they get older, become the ones to do the FaceTime entirely, don't even have to get on the call, right? If, however, you have an unexplored and unadmitted need for the parent to eventually validate you, well, then everything's going to go wrong. And then you're going to get all crazy about everything that they do. And you're going to need either you're going to have either fewer boundaries or more boundaries than would be useful. You really need to clarify what do you think you can get out of this relationship? Why are you still in it? And then the structure of how often you see this person and what boundaries you set will then become more clear. Yeah. The most difficult thing is giving up those unmet needs of yours yes. that you hope that one day they're going to fulfill. And that is, that's really difficult. So maybe you need some help for that. So we've got a problem that we're going to be looking at in just a moment after this. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Guess how long I've been helping couples have more fulfilling relationships? The answer shocked me. 39 years. Over this time, I've developed all sorts of interventions to help couples communicate better and make meaningful changes to protect and nurture their love. Some ideas I've used for a while and dropped. But at the core, there are a handful of must-haves that I use with all the couples I see face-to-face. -face. Sadly, 
I can't work with everyone who wants my help, but I can share my best relationship tools. I've put them in a new course with worksheets and links to my most helpful podcasts. There are four hours of instructions to do at your pace together, with your partner or on your own. And it normally retails at £150. But to launch, I've dropped them to a special introductory price of £99.50. If you'd like to find out more, go to andrewgmarshall.com forward slash tools and get started on improving your relationship. If you'd like to get more involved with The Meaningful Life, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, and you'll find a way of signing up for my newsletter and participating in the program by sending us a letter. And this is the one I've got for us to discuss today. It's been six months since I broke up with my boyfriend. He has finally moved the last of his things out of my apartment, and we don't have any more communication but I'm still crying almost every day. I keep going over all my mistakes and wishing if only I'd done this or that differently. Friends tell me I'm taking all the responsibility for the relationship not working, but I'm trying to learn and not make the same mistakes again. What do I do to move on beyond going on the apps again because the thought makes my insides turn over? I'm in my late 30s, time is running out, I don't have the luxury like when I was in my 20s, to wallow, focus on my career, and slowly recover. Help. Well, first of all, girl's got to be in therapy. (laughs) I definitely (laughs) think she should be in therapy because it's been a while, right? So she said that it was how long? Six months? Six months since they broke up. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a long time to be feeling this bad. I would imagine she struggles with quite a bit of insecure attachment and has a core fear that she is unlovable. You know, those are the kind of people that make these arbitrary sorts of cutoffs. You know, I understand there's a fertility window, but still, you know, I mean, the the people who kind of get very anxious about when they're going to meet somebody. I see women at 23 years old acting like that, too, you know, and there's no fertility problem there. When you think that like your time is running out and you'll never meet a soulmate, that is a preoccupied attachment issue. And I would be quite surprised if her anxious attachment and her pursuer behavior did not contribute to the demise of the relationship, in addition to finding a man that, if she worked with a therapist to talk about it, there were probably red flags from the very beginning that he would be unable to meet her emotional needs. You know, it it sounds like a classic pursuer distancer relationship, and eventually he just distanced entirely and left. And that probably has the origins back in childhood. Yes. I mean, that is where you know, she would have learned that the only way to get her needs met is to jump around and make a lot of noise because otherwise the parents aren't going to look at her because they're so consumed with their own stuff. If you learn that the only way to make somebody love you is to kind of get directly into their field of vision and make a bunch of noise, then that is like, you know, a behavior that really carries you through adult intimate relationships as well and can be very It can turn off people and it can make them feel very overwhelmed. But also it's likely that she was attracted on a subconscious level to the same sort of people that she had as a parent, somebody who was not very interested, was not wholly committed and did not have the emotional bandwidth to meet her needs. So how do you begin to unpick that? Well, I mean, this is me, so I would probably say that sentence, but you know, (laughs) but I mean, we really would say let's, all right, let's go back through the relationship history. I bet you dollars to donuts. This is not the first man where this has happened. And she even said it, you know, like lick my wounds, have another thing. So this woman's been through a bunch of breakups, you know, let's look at the other ones. Let's look at what happened there. I bet they were all emotionally avoidant guys. Well, where's the original? Is daddy or mommy? And so then we look in at their relationship, this, that, the other. When you really unpack this stuff, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. It's like eventually an avoidant man would not even seem appealing to her. And so many women don't even believe me. I have a podcast called like what to do if your boyfriend is a jerk and what if you keep being attracted to jerks, you know? And I say, and it's the truth, like, listen, like, 
a woman who's in her 30s is not attracted to a guy who's doing keg stands, who's a frat boy, right? Like you're just not attracted. You outgrew it. So it's obvious you can outgrow certain types, even if it really used to be your type before. And when you really look behind the curtain and think and look at these avoidant men, they've not done anything for you. You know, they've not done anything except make you miserable. They have a limited emotional capability originating their own childhood. Well, then they don't really seem that appealing anymore. It seems like, oh, shoot, there's another one. You know, I don't really even want to deal with it. But they sort of give you an introductory offer, the emotionally unavailable people, because deep down, they also want a relationship. So they are believers in romance as well. And they're looking for, in this case, it would be miswrite. At the very beginning, it's very easy to write checks you can't cash. Yes, of course, I want to get married. Yes, of course, I want to have children. And let's actually, Mm -hmm. I think two children would be nice. And we'll call them Kimberly and Natasha. It's easy. There's no skin in the game. And, you know, it's wonderful. You have a great time. And then you discover that they have no idea who Pink Floyd are. And (laughs) how could you possibly fall in love with somebody who hasn't got more than five Pink Floyd albums? Right. So they come up with reasons to go back into their avoidance stance. And in the honeymoon stage, dopamine is swirling through their brain. And so everything seems good. They're drunk on new relationship energy. And after that honeymoon stage stops, they're like, wait a sec. I do not really want to merge with this person. I will lose some of my own hard-won identity. And it's scary. And I've never experienced anything like it. And actually, they act pretty crazy. Because they do, because of course they are act, you know, a avoider goes to a pursuer and the pursuer gets activated by the avoidant and vice versa. And they say, you know, I can get into Pink Floyd, no trouble. I've bought all of their albums already and let's go to karaoke and perform them. Yes. It, and, then like, and then they find something else. And then they mm. find something else. There's this thing now, relationship OCD, relationship OCD, that is really this, you know, people that have, you know, already have kind of a brain wired a bit for OCD, but then they never really saw a great relationship growing up. And so they're constantly asking themselves if this is right, if this is right, is there somebody else? Is there somebody who wouldn't just learn Pink Floyd, but had all of the albums to begin with? And is that the person I should be? holding out for? Or perhaps I just want to be alone and do karaoke by myself. What about this person trying to repair the relationship with her father as well? She said that in the letter? What did she no, say? No, she doesn't. She doesn't mention oh. her father at all. But what, what you're saying is that this started somewhere. It started somewhere. It's either the father or the mother. So it doesn't yeah. really go in my experience on gender lines. But if there were an avoidant parent, then she would start to think about it wow, what did I get from my father? What did my mother get from my father? Very frequently, she's going to see that one parent pursued the other parent, always seemed wistful, always seemed sad, was always trying to make the marriage into more than it was, you know? And so that is a trope. That is an archetype. That is like buried deep in her subconscious. So she thinks that if it isn't abject yearning and some version of unrequited limerence, then it isn't real, you know? And then where did that originally start always in the, in the upbringing. And people really have aha moments with that stuff that really kind of, you know, is very meaningful and, and can really put them on a different trajectory. Well, I hope that our correspondent had some aha moments there. Now, we're almost running out of time in the main podcast. So I need to ask you the question, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful? Well, being a mother is very important. My children are very important to me. I think once you become a parent, it's very hard to find something that goes above that, you know, especially when they are still young and in the house and it's, they are not going to be in the house. My oldest is going to leave the house in four and a half years. I mean, it's crazy. My kids are um, 10, 12 and just turned 14. So you've still got a bit of time there. I know, but it goes, it's like she's going to be in high school next year. It's nuts, you know, to think about. It goes so fast. My marriage, I've remarried, as as you said, 2020. Got some good people working for you there. I don't know where they, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is uh, on my wrist too. I have my mm. tattoo of my anniversary. So it's important to me to have a good marriage as a template for my children. It's meaningful to me. My daughter, my middle daughter, the more emotional one said to me, 
oh, I'm going to want to find a boyfriend just like Donald because he's so nice to you. His name is John. They call him Donald from when they were little. I think Donald Trump was big. <laughs> but, um, but Hopefully anyway. your husband is nothing like Donald Trump. <laughs> nothing like him, but still, Donald. But yeah, she said, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to find a boyfriend who treats me just like Donald treats you. So that felt good to me to feel that, you know, especially the things that we're talking about today, very salient to that, to think that it's a good template. And and my career, I mean, you know, I mean, it's very important to me to help people. It always has been. I've started. You started young. <laughs> yeah, I started young, man. <laughs> I was precocious. And now, you know, it is, I get still like emails out of all the stuff I did years ago over here. You could see I had an op-ed in the Washington Post years ago, probably 10 years ago, about that having toddlers was hard for me. And every stage of parenting isn't good for everybody. And, you know, that was a very hard stage for me, two under two. And then I ended up with three under three and a half. I had two under 18 months. That was rough and it was intentional, which is even stupider, you know, and so really no forethought. People still write to me about that. And they say, you know, I was Googling if I'm a bad person or a bad mother and I came upon your op-ed and it really made me feel a lot better. So whenever I can really normalize somebody's experience and make them feel like they're not as alone and that they're not as messed up, that's very important to me because, you know, I wish that I would have had such things. You know, people talk to me about things like that when I was younger, etc. So that is a big meaningful part of my life is kind of normalizing people and helping them to see their experiences differently. Well, the conversation doesn't stop here. We're going to move on and talk about how to communicate with your partner about your dysfunctional childhood. Because if you feel you can't tell this information without it being used against you, this is a big problem. So we'll be talking about that in a moment. If you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.